music was beautiful today and uh, meaningful. And me and the choir was singing tonight. They were singing tonight. Just beautiful. So what a blessing to me. And uh, that's a big part of my weekend worship is to be here and sing with you and honor the Lord. Our souls need that. We just need that. And they don't do that anywhere else. This is the only place you can really do that. Places like this. The only place you can really do that like that with other people. And we're, we're made for that. So it's wonderful. How many of you are like owner's manual kinds of people? Owner's manual kinds of people. Raise your hand. Yes, you're an owner's manual kind of person. Really? Not too many. How many of you are just like, nah, grab the thing and just try it out. And if I get in trouble, then I look at the owner's manual. <laughs> I guess I'm kind of like that. I don't ever look at the owner's manual. I'd grab it, try it off. It doesn't work. I call people who look at the owner's manual. Like my brother Kevin, he like reads all the owner's manuals. He knows how the thing works. I'm like, I don't know how this works. He goes, did you read the owner's manual? I go, are you kidding me? I just don't do that. Heard about a guy who bought a camper, decided that he would go camping with this little little RV, not a very big one. And he, he it had an owner's manual. And, and, and so he took it to Tennessee. And um, his wife said to him, Hey, honey, um, I noticed tonight that in the hallway there's a little red light on. Do you have any idea what that means? And he said, no, but I, um, I, I got an owner's manual. I'll just look, I'll look it up. So he looks it up, and it says the holding tanks need to be emptied. And so he says, okay, that can't be that hard. And so he reads the owner's manual says, go to a place, put the tire over the uh, pit or whatever it is, you know. And then he said, then it said to go and, and to put some air pressure on the other side of the tank. And, and it said, uh, actually said 10 point five pounds he went over on the other side to put it in there he had misread it he thought it was a hundred and five pounds so he started putting air in the tank and it took a long time he said it was just odd because it just took a long long time he said to his wife go over there you know where the stuff comes out and just keep an eye on that you know because i'm not sure this is the way it's working the way it's supposed to. Let me know if you see anything out of the ordinary. And so he just continued to put air in, you know, 50 pounds, 60, 70, 75, 80, 80. And a guy came up, drove up behind him in a really, really high-end, expensive RV. He chit-chatted with him a little bit. The guy was really proud. He said, I really don't need to clean out my tanks. Just want to get the dust out of them, try to keep the bugs off the windshield. He said he, like, paid $225,000 for does anybody here have a $225,000 RV? If you do, yes, raise your hand. Yes, I see that hand back there. Uh, you wish, Brendan, you wish. You're back there. Yes. And uh, so, so the guy pulls up. He says, yeah, I paid $225,000 for it. At about 90 pounds, something bad happened, and he made a real mess of his friend's RV. It's really important that you follow the owner's manual. Now, the book of Matthew, I know you're wondering what that story had to do with. Matthew is really like the owner's manual in Christianity because it is really the culmination of God's, it's the culmination of God's redemptive program. All this flyover of the Old Testament that we've been doing has been really kind of pointing toward the culmination that's going to be described in the book of Matthew. What a wonderful book questions that you ask about any book might include things like this. You know, if you have any book, really, I'm not just talking about any book of the Bible, but if you want to kind of capture the heart of a book, ask some questions like this. Who wrote the book? Tell me about the author. As a matter of fact, if you 
you really want to understand things. You might like kind of look up the author first and get a little bio on the author and what would their perspective be and where were they raised and what are they like and who was the book written to? Who's the primary audience really uh, of the book and where was it written and when was it written and why was it written? These are questions you'd want to ask really about any book. You'd understand it better if you did. And what's the main thrust, the big idea, the the main message of the book? And how is the material in the book arranged? Is there a special arrangement of the material that would help me really understand what the major thrust of the book is? And frequently, the Bible, the more you study it, the more you'll admire the Bible. You folks that have been walking with the Lord for years, you know that's true, right? The more you study the Bible, the more you admire the Bible, the more you admire the author, the more you realize the author of the Bible is brilliant. And I suppose that's a terrible understatement, right? And so how is the material in the book arranged? And why is it arranged like that? And then another question that I like to ask that we often don't ask, which is a really fruitful question to ask when you're thinking about a book of the Bible, and that is, in the history of the Christian church, how has the book been used in the history of the Christian church? I'll give you a quick example. That, and uh, I have a, a commentary on the Psalms. And the, the take or the slant on this particular commentary is really unusual. All it really has is commentary on how, it's a historic commentary on how God's people have used these Psalms over the years. It's just rich, beautiful, um, and, and, and that, and that's a good thing to ask of any book. By the way, you know, when you're thinking about hymns, you ever notice when somebody talks about an old hymn, and you know, we, we unashamedly do brand new and really old songs here, and I just think that's a, not a bad idea. I, th- I think it's a great idea. Brand new because all songs were brand new at one time, and, and every once in a while one that comes along, it's just like, wow, and I hear you sing, and sometimes I hear you sing a brand new song, and I can tell that the Spirit of God is stirring your heart. But then there are songs that you may come in as a kind of a new Christian or a person that like, well, I don't really normally sing that kind of music. And yet we kind of want you to know that song because over the years, you probably are going to love it like we do. Um, and then the most powerful thing, and I remember this when I was a kid, we had a thing called Hymn Sing. And all the local church, all the churches would kind of get together once a month and we would all get together just sing hymns. And then they would have refreshments in the basement, which was the part that I really liked especially. And, uh, but one of the things that would happen every once in a while is somebody would introduce a hymn with the story of the hymn. Here's who wrote it. Here are the circumstances. And then sometimes, have you ever think, I remember I sang that song at the funeral when my mother died. My mother's living, thank God. But, you know, somebody might say, I remember that song because that's the song we sang. When we first got married, that was our song. When I went to Moody Bible Institute, that was our theme. You know, that's just something very, very rich. And so it is with the Word of God. The, the history of a, of a passage or of a book How have God's people used it? And when you ask those questions of the book of Matthew, it gets just really interesting. And tonight I want to kind of answer some of those questions. And thank you for being here, showing your honor to the Lord and to the Lord's day and your eagerness about the Bible. We are starting on the adventure through the New Testament. And again, like I kind of said last Sunday night, your pastor has like adult version ADD. So completing any task like this is... It's kind of a big deal. So it must be the Lord helping me. And we're going through the New Testament. And so it's, it's really fun. I hope you'll, you'll, you'll try to just be here for all of them and, or catch the podcast if you absolutely can't. And you'll get this, uh, fly over the Old Testament and you'll try to read, try to apply yourself to reading, uh, the books when you can, either before or after. It's much better if you do it before. 
Uh, but sometimes it's helpful both ways, and I would just suggest that you do that. Who's the author? Matthew Levi. Been a publican, working for Herod Antipas as a tax collector, publican, probably high level, probably in Capernaum along the Via Maris, a big, an important route. And, and, the, and tax collectors at that time, one of the skills they had was the ability to take a shorthand that was very important if you were a tax collector to keep very accurate records. And there's no doubt in my mind that God in his providence used Matthew, Levi, and this skill that he had before he even knew the Lord that he probably misapplied by being probably dishonest and taking things from people because of his position as a tax collector. But the skill that he had about accurately recording things quickly, it's probably true that Matthew had the ability to actually record in writing the, the actual words of Jesus. We may have very accurate, very specific you know, wording. Of course, obviously we know that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit which is a great help, of course. But this is something humanly and it's humanist that God uh, would have used. And so we have this, um, the author being uh, Matthew uh, Levi. And um, who's the audience? Well, let me tell you why I believe, and most commentators believe that the audience is particularly Jewish. Some, maybe three reasons, and I think these are kind of helpful. One, and they're going to be in ascending order of importance. In other words, the most important one's going to be last. Um, absence of explanation of Jewish things assumes that the audience is already familiar with Jewish things. And so, in other words, because Jewish things aren't explained, it's probably written to Jewish people who understand already. There's also a thing, and there's some debate about this, um, but most people believe this is true when you kind of compare scriptures, is that there, is a, there are synonymous terms, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. And, and, and most people believe the reason that kingdom of heaven is used for the same thing kingdom of God is used for in other of the Gospels is because of a sensitivity to Jewish people and their use of the name of God. So rather than saying kingdom of God, it was kingdom of heaven in deference to people who'd be sensitive about that. And there's some debate about that, but that's what I think. And then there's continual references to Jesus as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And this is a big one. This is a huge one. This is a major one. If you un- want to understand Matthew it's probably just true to understand the fulfillment formula that you, you know, this, uh, this is, um, s- s- happened so that it would be fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet. Language like that occurs so frequently in the book of Matthew that it's obviously a key thing in Matthew. Matthew is a book that's a fulfillment uh, that describes Jesus as a fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecies and other prophecies. And that's the main thing. And that is why this book would be aimed at Jewish people because they would have regard for Christ, for Messiah. They would believe in Messiah. The jury would be out in their mind about whether Jesus was the Messiah. And Matthew's tract, if you will, is to convince these people, these Jewish people, that the Messiah they're looking for is Jesus. And you see that when you read the book. It's just so obvious. The authority just screams out of this book if you're not kind of used to it. Since we're used to reading Matthew and we tend to kind of flatten out the, 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 the sharp edges of its original purpose for writing and we kind of like we, we're familiar with it, we don't recognize how bold and how confident and how authoritative the statements of Jesus are in the book. They are immensely authoritative. Nobody talks like Jesus talks and gets away with it. Nobody makes claims about Jesus like Matthew's making claims about Jesus. No claims could be made about anybody else like they're made about Jesus. They would not hold water. So you have this, the audience is Jewish. And 
where was written. Most scholars believe in, in, in Antioch of Syria. One of the reasons why is because of the timing of the book or the time when the book was probably written. That was the locus of the vitality of the church. In other words, the church was at its strongest in that place. There's no headquarters of the church. We don't kind of want to say it that way because that would give you the wrong idea about the church because we believe in the Bible clearly teaches autonomous self-governing local churches, but there is a, such a thing as a kind of a locus of flourishing of the church. And at that time, Antioch was flourishing. Most scholars believe that Matthew wrote Matthew from Antioch of Syria. When was it written? Well, we know that it was written before the fall of Jerusalem because in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is going to talk about the fall of Jerusalem, going to describe it, but he's going to describe it prophetically. So it hadn't happened yet, you see. And we also know um, now really that the book of Matthew was written after Mark, though the church frequently thought that Matthew was the oldest gospel. It's pretty clear now that Mark is older than Matthew. And that's going to be more on that next time when we go. We're not going to do it next week because we have a, a really, really special missionary report next Sunday night. But uh, Wad Haddad, talk about that in a moment. But when we do get to Mark, you're going to see that. There's some really interesting stuff making news about Mark right now. And it's just amazing. We'll talk about that. When we talk, uh, when we do the flyover of Mark, and I know you will not want to miss, and you'll bring your friends and neighbors and relatives and all of that. And so then why? What's the purpose? Well, it's a handbook on discipleship, on following Jesus. It's a handbook on following Jesus. Who is Jesus and what's he demand of us? And so this is, hey, you're a Christian. you got to know this book. Matthew really is a primer. As a matter of fact, and we're going to say it kind of two or three times so that you'll get it, and especially embedded in your thinking, is that, Matthew is probably written with the purpose of being a primer for teachers to teach others because of the orderliness and because of the the comprehensive nature of what it says about Jesus. It was probably a primer for teachers to teach other people verbally about who Jesus was and to coach them and disciple them. And you know, our, our, uh, our church rightly has as its mission statement, the Great Commission, a kind of a modernized version of the Great Commission, glorify God by making disciples. So this church ought to especially have a high view of the book of Matthew because it ends with this strong commission to go make disciples and included in the book is a primer on how to make disciples. Let me just kind of read some stuff I found helpful. Until the time of the Renaissance, the Reformation, the gospel of Matthew was thought to have been the first gospel written. We now know Mark is older. Uh, More on that later. It was the most copied, most quoted, most used gospel catechism in the early liturgy of the church for the first two centuries. In other words, to be Christian meant you knew this book. Commentator wrote this. When we turn to Matthew, we turn to the book, which, by the way, when I say a commentator and I don't tell you who it was. Why is that? Just so you know, because I don't want you reading them. (laughs) It's like he said something good, but you don't want to trust him. So. That's probably not very fair to them, is it? I don't know if that's intellectually fair. We'll talk about that later. A commentary, a commentator who said this, which was good, and said other things which are dangerous, <laughs> said this. That was probably unnecessary. When we turn to Matthew, we turn, when we turn to Matthew, we turn to the book which may well be called the most important single document of the Christian faith. For in it we have the fullest, most systematic account of the life and teachings of Jesus is because it developed the teaching of Jesus in a thematic way and is used to teach new converts, both Jew and Gentile, about the life and the message of Jesus of Nazareth the Christ. And so, and this is like an understatement, and get this, obviously, Matthew forms a logical bridge between the Old and the New Covenants 
between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Because from the Old Testament economy to the church, it's, it's used in the Old Testament in the promise fulfillment format, as did the early sermons of Acts, which are called Kergama. So the Old Testament is quoted over 50 times and alluded to many, many more times. And titles and, and analogies used of God in the Old Testament, Yahweh, are applied to Jesus in Matthew. Get it? Big deal. Old Testament uses name for God, the very God, and then the Jewish people are like, there is one God. And Matthew goes, yes, and his name is Jesus. That's who he is. It's a very in-your-face, very bold. In other words, if you want to have a right understanding of the Old Testament, just read Matthew and you'll get a very clear understanding of the Old Testament. We'll talk more about that in a moment. It's a history it's, um, it's history of the people of God is a basic primer on the personal work of Christ. So Matthew's the climax of God's plan of redemption that all the Bible has been pointing toward and working toward. And someone has said, Matthew is the most important book ever written. From Matthew, it's clear that Jesus is the goal of the Old Testament revelation of God. And some believe it's that way because Matthew is arranged, again, initially to be a tool for teachers, a manual or a primer. Does it make you want to read it and know it? Because certainly you do. So just think about the logical uh, implications of this. So the Old Testament, the Old Testament is only rightly understood if you understand Matthew, right? So Jewish people who reject Matthew, though they have a reverence for the Old Testament, do not understand the Old Testament. You don't understand Matthew's take on the Old Testament. Jewish people don't have a right understanding of the Old Testament, right? Muslim people have a have a reverence for Old Testament Scripture and Old Testament prophets, but they have a dead wrong understanding of it because they don't know the, the material in Matthew. And Matthew is clear, bold, in your face, who is Jesus? Unless you understand who Jesus is, you've misunderstood. In other words, let me just say with great boldness, only real Bible Christians truly understand what the Old Testament is about. Because if you reject Matthew and what Matthew says and Matthew's argument, you really don't get the Old Testament. And so you may have religion, and that religion may go all over the world, and you may do amazing things for that religion, good, bad, and ugly, but you don't understand. Only Christians really understand the Old Testament. And the reason we can say that is because only Christians really appreciate and believe what Matthew was saying. The argument of Matthew is only believed by Christians. Now, you stop and just think about that in, a, in terms of application to our church where God has put us on Telegraph Road in Taylor, Michigan. Think about this. Very few churches in the world can say what we can say about ourselves. This is no pride. It's the providence of God that he placed us here. And then shortly thereafter, all from all over the world came people, Arab people, who don't live very far from here, all around us. And yet I kind of think we still struggle with a bit of prejudice. Like the old story I think I told you once about a pastor who said, we're going to send missionaries to Africa, but that black kid can't come to our church. That's just craziness, right? Someday we're going to say that about this. Like We didn't understand these people that came from that part of the world, and they were different than us, and so we kind of kept our distance, and we tended to kind of vilify or demonize them. And we didn't, we didn't see them as precious to God. We didn't see them as people that God created who, who are human beings who he loves, who we should treasure and love. 
Evangel Baptist Church is in a unique place in the providence of God in this time, in this place, because we're so close to such a, the, the largest uh, population of Arab people in the United States. So my question is, I don't have answers for this, but I think we ought to be asking ourselves the question, so what's God going to expect of our church since that's true? We understand the Old Testament. They don't. They have a deadly understanding of the Old Testament. Jewish people have a deadly understanding, except less they're Messianic Jews. So since we have a right understanding of the Old Testament, and these people are precious to God, and He created them, and He loves them, and they're dear to Him, and he treasures them, and they're treasures to God, and he, 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 then, they, then we, they should be dear to us. So there should be a special eagerness. There should be a special uh, solicitation towards people. Like, oh, my goodness, here I get to be around a person that Jesus loves. I, I don't have to take a plane or, or learn a language or fly to another place. or coming here learning English. We, we got to figure that out as a church. And I, I challenge you. I don't know the answers. I just know this is true. I challenge you as a church. Wow, here we are sitting. What are we going to say? How are we going to answer to God? So what did you do? You had this wonderful facility. You had these people who were trained in the Bible. And you had some means. And you were in the place where you, like, all the, like a lot of other churches aren't, here we are. What do we do? One thing I can say from an application point of view is come back next week and hear Wad Hadad, who's a very interesting guy, Grew up in Iraq, was saved in Baghdad, went to a Baptist college in Minnesota, Wisconsin, went to Detroit Baptist. Very interesting guy. Loves the Lord. And he goes, uh, and he's involved in, in, in theological education. And he is going to be, it's a work I have here next Sunday. And so don't miss that. That'll be, that'll be very helpful. So you have these themes in Matthew of authority, of kingdom, which are themes that we've just been have it embedded in this service in, in song and, and promises that he will, has always been and always be, will always be the king until the end of the age and this emphasis on discipleship. In terms of structure, there's just something that's really interesting in, in Matthew. And of course, there's a lot we could talk about, but it's a flyover. But this is a, a neat thing in Matthew that you see when we ask the question, so what's the unique structure of Matthew? You can't read Matthew without noticing that it toggles back and forth between discourse, Jesus talking, and narrative, stories about Jesus. So it's a ton of fun. I don't know about you, but I'm just like loving that it's my job <laughs> to teach and preach through Matthew. Because it never gets old. Every week is like a really cool story or a teaching of Jesus himself. And it just goes back and forth. Five discourses interlaced with stories. And, uh, and so you can see these discourses of Matthew. For instance, one, sorry for the weird punctuation there, the Sermon on the Mount is a discourse of Jesus. Now, let me just point out one thing about these discourses. As we go through, there's just something I'll point out about each of them. There's a lot that we could point out, but because we're limited in time, I just want to point out one thing that I think is a clear emphasis because it starts with this as an emphasis, it ends with this as an emphasis, and you see it in each one of his discourses. Is When you read the discourses of Jesus, these five different speeches, if you will, or organizations that Matthew gave of speeches, that material that Jesus taught, the thing that you might overlook, because you're used to going to Sunday school, you're used to going to church, is the in-your-face bold claims of Jesus and his authority. So look for statements of authority, because that's what Matthew's all about. When we get to the end, I will tell you what we're going to say is, so, there you have it, this is who Jesus is. Do you bow and worship him as king? 
There, now, you don't have to listen to the rest because you know the big idea. But Sermon on the Mount, notice chapter 7. I can show you a bunch, but chapter 7, uh, for instance, as you get to the end of, there of the Sermon on the Mount, there's this commentary on it. And so it was when Jesus, this is verse 28 and 29, so it was when Jesus ended these things, the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not the scribes. The scribes didn't speak with their own authority. They quoted other scribes or rabbis. Jesus said, you've heard it's been said, but I say to you, but he's just taking his own authority. I say to you, that's a shocker. And so Matthew's pointing that out. He's saying, notice that Jesus took authority himself. Don't miss that. The principles of the kingdom here are given in this discourse. And then there's that discourse. You skip forward to chapter 10, verses 1 through 42. Remember, we already taught this, the commissioning of the apostles before they kind of go out. There you have the representatives of the king. In the discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, you have the principles of the kingdom. In the commissioning of the apostles, you have representatives of the king uh, being sent out. Look in chapter 10 and notice, and this is just kind of cherry-picked. You could do a lot of others, but here's a statement of authority, right? Verse 32, chapter 10, verse 32. Jesus says, Whoever confesses me before men... Him also I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And in the judgments, Jesus is saying, I'm the one that's going to judge. And their disposition of their soul is in my hands. These are bold, bold, exclusive claims of authority of Jesus. That's something we don't want to miss. And in the parables of the kingdom, which we got into, and it, it, it may be true that because these are in the center and we're in the center of the book, right? 28 chapters, we're at 14. And the center of the book might be the heart of the book, might be the main point of the book there. We have the parables about the kingdom. I hope you would know. Man, my punctuation really went sour. That's like chapter 13, verse 152. I think it's 1512. But anyway, somebody was sleeping at the keyboard. But anyway, parables of the kingdom... You have Jesus teaching these stories to help his disciples understand what it was going to be like, what the kingdom, this present form of the kingdom that, that, that we're even in now, what it's going to be like. And, and, to, and to kind of temper their enthusiasm in one sense or their maybe zealotry and help them to understand, no, there are going to be many who reject and many who don't accept, uh, accept the truth. And um, I had a conversation with a young man who is in bed, is deep into ministry. And he's this really promising young guy, deep into ministry, into discipleship ministry. And he asked me if he could talk with me, and he was really troubled. And he said, I need to talk to somebody because something happened that I don't know how to process. And he said, it's just made me almost lose heart for ministry. He said, a fellow that I was discipling, and I really thought he had a lot of promise, he, um, I stayed in touch with him, and he, he took his life. He said, I, it made me just feel like maybe I was wasting my time trying to help people. I want to say to him, you know, well, now you're starting to understand what ministry looks like. Sometimes you have people that receive the truth, and they flourish, and they grow, but many people are not going to receive the truth. And sometimes they're going to end tragically. And you're going to think, what could I have done differently? And so I said to him, do you think that Jesus might have had anybody 
in his circle of disciples that rejected him and took his life. Yeah. Jesus himself. So I said to him, you know, Understand, now you're becoming a deeper minister of the gospel. You're, you're, you're much richer. You, 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 you don't have this kind of false idealism that everybody's going to accept what you say. You realize that many are going to reject Jesus and they're going to reject what you say. And you're going to have this burden on your soul and it's going to be all your life. You'll always have it. But, but then I said to him, don't lose the romance of ministry. Don't lose the joy of helping people. Don't lose how sweet it is to see somebody that does get set free. I don't know if you know it, but I mean, we have going on right here, right now in our church, both the most wonderful things and the most horrible things at the same time. And sometimes they're in the very same people, right? Because God is reaching into people's hearts and people are coming to know the Lord here. We have a series of baptisms and testimonies that are just coming up. But Satan's not going to let these people go easy. He's roughing them up. And if you pay attention, you can see it happening. They're just struggling forward. And even like like today, I could just feel and see that. And uh, we're in it. And Jesus gave these principles of the kingdom and beautiful stories to help people understand how powerful the kingdom would be, but how often people would also reject. And the whole, when we taught that, you, you remember that. And, and here we have maybe a, a good place to, to look is in chapter 13 and and verse 41. And I could have given you a number of examples. But again, here we have Jesus talking about the wheat and the tares. And verse 41 says in chapter 13, the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Do you see what I'm saying? What a statement of authority. Jesus is saying, Sunday, I'm going to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. No man could say something like that and still people revere him. Only God. Matthew says that's what Jesus said. He said in the end, he's going to decide who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. It's a bold statement of authority. He's the king. Relationships in the kingdom, chapter 18, verses 1 through 35. You have this beautiful discourse where Jesus is talking about the humility of a child and so forth and about kind of like uh, relationships between a people, the spirit of the kingdom. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, you have principles of the kingdom and the commissioning of the apostles. You have representatives of the kingdom. In the, in the parables about the kingdom, you have really the nature of the present kingdom and he's helping us not to be misinformed about the nature of the kingdom so we won't be discouraged and we won't lose heart in ministry, right? And then we have the spirit of the kingdom, this humility and, you know, there's this bickering there with that, that just in close proximity that between the disciples, who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus goes into the discourse and he says, you guys are not getting this. Poor disciples, you know, they were the foil for so much of that. And then that, here Matthew writes it down in humility himself. And then you have the Olivet Discourse, the future of the kingdom. That's the last of the discourses in Matthew the 5. Now, the reason we know that these are distinct discourses is because there's a formula. It's kind of like at the end of each one, it says, when Jesus had finished these sayings. And so there's that marker, if you will, in Matthew. That's how you can kind of tell this isn't something somebody just cooked up. It's actually in the text, these different discourses. And they're kind of marked out in a literary, by a literary, by the repetition of a literary phrase uh, that's given there. Now, Matthew tells the story then of Jesus 
who had a birth like no other. He fulfilled Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah himself. He astounded and he resisted the religious authorities who had formal training and formal authority. He healed the sick and the lame. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He boldly took authority over the law and he declared himself to be the fulfillment of the law. He prayed with passion. He spoke with authority. He prophesied with confidence minute details about the future. He boldly told the future and his place in it. <laughs> and it's kind of Nobody's ever written like that. Nobody's ever made claims like that. He showed mercy. He purposefully died with dignity. He rose again. (laughs) He continued his teaching. And he commissioned his followers to make other followers. And there you have it in the climax after the passion narratives about the, about all the, the, um, the the week of his death, which as you know, in, in the gospels, the gospels aren't just primarily, even though we sometimes say they're miniature biographies of Jesus, that's kind of a loose way of saying it in, in, In actuality, they're each tracks with a specific purpose. And the the material about Jesus' life early is more sparse. And then there's a lot of writing about the week leading up to his death and his crucifixion and then sometimes his resurrection. And so obviously there's emphasis based on the amount of ink there on what Jesus came to do in his so that's why we're preaching the gospel all the time. Not just saying, wasn't Jesus a nice guy? Shouldn't we try to be like him? He was so patient. Well, he was. Oh, so beautifully patient. But he's not just an example, though he is an example. That's not what he primarily came to do. But he primarily came as a part of a redemptive program to die, to be buried, to rise again. And so then you get to the end of Matthew, and then you've got this strong statement going out. As we know, he's the king. And he's in authority. And he has every right to have authority. And so he says, now, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. You go and you make other followers of me. Baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to observe whatever I've commanded you. And I am with you even to the end of the age. <laughs> so there we are. with our We land on our mission statement again as a church. My question to you guys and to my heart is, do you believe in the Jesus who's presented in the book of Matthew? I mean, believe, believe. Amen, Chris. I see your hands up back there. I believe. Do you believe? Because that's going to totally, totally, totally inform your life. It's not just, yes, I, I think this is true. That's my prejudice about my favorite team. No, no, no. Jesus, when he comes in, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the creator God. He's the coming king. He spoke the entire world, everything bright and beautiful into existence. He's the one that's going to come quickly and judge the living and the dead. He's the one that comes into our hearts in our darkest hour and comforts us. Only he can do that. Nobody can do that but him. He's the king. How do you feel about that? Is he your king? Really? And then, will you submit? Will you obey? Will you live as a loyal subject of the king? You say, absolutely. What's he asking you to do then? And are you going to do it? What's he asking you to do? Just ask him. And are you going to do it? When you're reading your Bible, something jump off the page, say, oops, how about this one? He's the king. Do it. Obey him. Humble yourself. It's wonderful when you figure out who the benevolent king of the entire universe is and you just get under his authority. Most people in the world, they don't have that. They're just like a lawn to themselves, kind of bouncing around like a cosmic pinball machine. <laughs> and they're headed for 
destruction, for damnation, for absence from God forever. And this would include this question, do you believe who Jesus, the Jesus who's presented here? Will you submit, obey him and live as a loyal subject of the king? And then will you go and find others to submit to him? That's really what this book is about. Here's who Jesus is. Are you going to follow him? That means you're going to go find other people to follow him. Isn't that the coolest story about the gal rappelling out of a helicopter this morning? I heard it. I'm like, oh, my goodness, that's amazing. How inspiring. She she rappels out of a helicopter. She falls. Wins these people the Lord God uses her. She stays 40 years in another tribe, and they they bring other men follow, men who start the church, and, and they have people that know the Lord and love the Lord and follow the Lord because somebody went, like Jesus said, This is exciting. And we are not going to leave you frustrated as a church. As leaders, we're working all the time hard on how we can retool this church to meet the demands of this age in this time. It's a unique time. We can't do things the way we always did them before. we got to do some things in a new way. The old message in a new way. Don't be freaked out. It's going to be okay. I'm just saying, what we want to do is, we want to say, okay, King Jesus, I'm hearing you. You want me to make disciples in this world that we live in right now. And we're thinking hard as leaders in the church about how to do that. And we'll be giving you some neat stuff. And it's 7 o'clock, so um, I won't tell you now. But I'll tell you later. But don't, don't be frustrated here with that. Just let's get this basic principle in mind. Is Jesus Christ the King? Yes, that's the answer to that. Is Jesus Christ the King? And you say, yes. Is Jesus Christ the King? Yes, yeah. And is He your King? Yes. Then you want to obey Him and follow Him, right? Yes. Then you want to go and tell other people about Him and make disciples. You can't say you're a follower of Jesus, but you're not going to do what He says. That's not. You can't say, Jesus, you're my King, but I'm going to run my own life. You can't do that. You can't. And you don't want to do that. You're not wired for that. You're wired to do what Jesus made you to do. And this is exciting to be a part of a local church because right now, the heart of the world is Jesus is using the local church to win people to the Lord, to disciple people. And you are a part of a local church that, that we are in. We are, we sit in a throbbing mission field there everywhere. I'm, I stopped by for a little treat and I, uh, this afternoon kind of got, come on again. Does my hair look blonde? Because I walk out and a guy in a red pickup truck with the red wings sticker on the back of the pickup truck, he goes, hey, hey, you, yeah, you. I'm like, yeah, what? He goes, you know, did you hear about the girl that like she put TGIF on her toenails? She was blonde. I'm like, no, I didn't hear that. Because it stands for toes go in first, he says. I'm like, okay, (laughs) thanks for telling me. I get in the car and say, why did he tell me that? I don't know him. Did I look blonde? What was that about? But in the craziest kind of way, he just took his big red Ford truck and he went tooling off down that way. And I thought to myself, that's one of our, that's one of our people, knucklehead with a sense of humor. And he's our people. He's, he lives right here. He's, he's, who's going to tell him about Jesus? He's willing to talk and, and swap jokes. He's, he's a, a decent Joe. He's kind of one of our people. What, who's going to reach him? Who's going to love him? Who's going to talk with him? Who's going to tell him about who Jesus is? And I want to suggest that we'll give you a bunch of ideas, but I want to suggest that you remember this little formula that we kind of borrowed from from another church, really, and I think it's a great idea. Have a prayer list. Start praying for the people that God put in your life. 
You want to obey the Great Commission? Here's a way to do it. Start praying for the people that God put in your life. Second thing is, start loving the people you're praying for. Invest in them. Love them. Do nice stuff for them. While you're doing nice stuff for them, probe a little bit about the message of Jesus. If they're not ready to accept it, just keep loving them. Invite them or whatever. And then just keep loving them and then probe a little bit later. And when you get to go to the next step, go to the next step. Or, you know, if the Lord tells you, just go ahead and dump truck the gospel on them. You know, I mean, sometimes they need that. But I'm not saying that you should always do that. But some of you are probably called. Just go ahead. Let it, let it fly, you know. Be careful. But, 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 but probe and by your loving. So, so pray for them. That's number one. What's the second one? You guys are you're certainly swifter learners than that. Yes. Number one is pray for him. We could be here a long time, people. Yeah. And number two is love them. Yeah. Invest in them. And number three is either invite or the, them to hear the gospel or explain the gospel to them. So, you know, could you do that? Hey, it, it's not jumping out of a helicopter. <laughs> it's just like loving people and putting them on your prayer list. Put them in your Bible, maybe. And, and ask God to give you the sensitivity. It's a great way to live. What, what if you started out tomorrow morning and you're shaving or you're putting on your makeup uh, or, or, or both? And, and, um, <laughs> and so you're, <laughs> I guess that wouldn't work. And so you're, <laughs> and so you're, you're, you're getting ready to go. And you just say, Lord, you know, here I, I'm your follower. I got a lot of work to do today and I got to punch the clock and do what I'm told to do, but I, but I'm willing to be used by you. So you tell me what I don't know and lead me where I don't know where to go. And you, I'm, I want to, you know, God is alive and you're alive to God, you know, right? And so you just say, what, you know, lead me today. Show me who, and then he'll put somebody on your heart. Maybe somebody he's already working with already. Might be like easy pickings for you. We're going to keep talking about this and gentle, you know, every once in a while, I get a little feedback from somebody that's like, pastor, I feel like you're kind of badgering me. Please don't take it like that. That's not what we're doing. I want to encourage you and I want to inspire you and I'm never going to stop talking about this because to stop talking about this is to say, I'm not really a follower of Jesus. I will never stop talking about this. I will never stop doing this. To stop doing this is to say, I'm no longer following Jesus and I'm not going to do that. So you are a missionary. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a missionary. This church is a missionary church. This is a following Jesus kind of a church. Wow, it can get really exciting right here. If God is Holy Spirit decides he's going to bless that and he starts sending. And I think I'm seeing some of that. He's sending people and we're going and getting people and we're loving people. And it's a wonderful, chaotic mess. It's going to get weird and fun. And exciting. And your kids will have stories to tell about how Jesus still changes people's lives and delivers people. I can see some cool things happening. But I'm just kind of going off. There was a guy named Charles. He was a Marine. And after he got out of the Marine Corps, he decided he was going to be an attorney. And so he became a cutthroat attorney. I mean, we're talking about a rough, lost, cutthroat, successful, proud, ruthless, effective attorney. And he worked his way into the highest office in the land. He was a cabinet member of the president of the United States of America with all the accoutrements that went with that. He was a power guy. He was a hatchet man for the president, Charles, until he went down, didn't he? And he went down hard. In Nixon's Watergate scandal, Chuck Colson was one of the first guys that went to prison. But something funny happened to him. Before he went to prison, and he got sentenced to seven months in prison. But just before he went to prison, he ran into somebody who Jesus was their king. 
and they began to describe who Jesus was to him. And the Holy Spirit turned Chuck Colson's heart open to himself. And Chuck Colson got saved. Everybody said, oh, yeah, it's one of those jailhouse conversions. And it won't stick, but it did. It really did stick. And Charles Colson, because Jesus changed his life, he used Charles Colson to change the world. And this week, Charles Colson's memorial service is going to be at the National Cathedral in our nation's capital because people recognize Jesus so radically changed this guy from proud and arrogant to humble servant of God to a person who didn't care about the poor and oppressed to a guy who spent countless hours in the dregs of prisons of the world. I heard a couple of emergent guys who were having a talk, and Chuck Colson was on a panel, and a couple of these emergent guys were on there. Shorthand for these emergent guys is they weren't theologically sound, and, and, and they're having a discussion. And the emergent guys, they ask them a question, and the emergent guys just go on and on and on saying, Christian people don't care about homosexuals. Christian people don't show love and compassion. Evangelical Christians don't do this, don't do that. And Chuck Colson's just sitting there very quietly, and they go on for like 20 minutes. And they make this whole big case about how bad churches are, how bad pastors are, how bad evangelical Christians are. Chuck, and then they kind of like turn the camera to Chuck Colson and they say, Chuck Colson, do you have a response? And he just says, well, for I forget the number, but it was like, well, for the last 27 years or 32 years, or whatever it was, I've been in and out of prisons all over the world. And the people in the prisons who are holding the HIV patients when they die are always Christian people. That's been my experience. End of his comment. There's something powerful about a person who really understands who Jesus is and decides he's going to do what Jesus says and follow him. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I can't live on the scale of the lady who dropped out of the helicopter. I can't live on the scale of a Charles Colson. Maybe, maybe not. But will that matter to your neighbor if God uses you to win them to Jesus Christ? They are every bit as saved as anybody who got saved in that jungle or in that prison, forever for Christ. What an exciting thing. That's pretty exciting. Let's sing together. I have decided. Pastor, come and lead us as we sing. Let's just affirm again that we have decided to follow Jesus. Stand with us, if you will. Pastor will tell us the number.